Well, you know, Mike, we've talked about the fact that it's um, not either divine or human, but it's both and, yes? And um, if Jesus is going to say to us at the end, well done, good and faithful servant, I think that if we have the ears to hear it, he says that to us along the way through people like Bruce Waltke. So we don't always have to wait till the very end to hear God say, well done. He says it along the way. Okay, now we're going to shift gears some. Uh, instead of studying a particular text like Psalm 1, we're going to really be, this is like a literature 101 class. This is Hebrew Poetry 101. Uh, last night we started by saying open up to any chapter except 15 in the book of Exodus. But for the time being, let's just go to Exodus and let's open up to Exodus chapter 15. And if we look at Exodus 15, but flip back to 14 and flip ahead to 16, we will see a difference. Now, here's the difference. Chapters like 13 and 14 in Exodus are written in paragraph form, in block form. In chapter 15, that's not the case. You have all this, these short lines and all these indentations. What that's saying to you is 14 and 16 are prose. 15 is poetry. So in a Hebrew Bible uh, or in an English translation, when you have a line and then an indentation and then a line back out on the margin and an indentation and a back out on the margin and an indentation, when you have something like that, the way it's laid out, the English translators are saying this is poetry. And the whole book of Psalms is going to be poetry. So what we're studying here in this lesson is what makes Hebrew poetry poetry? And why do modern printers print their Bibles the way they do? But what we're talking about doesn't just apply to the book of Psalms. Most of Job is poetry. Ecclesiastes, poetry. Song of Solomon, poetry. Proverbs, poetry. Most of the prophets, except Jonah, poetry. But even Jonah, chapter 2, is a poem. So as you flip through your Bibles from now on and you see the difference between the block setting and the single line indentation setting, you now know that the block is written in prose and that indentation method is poetry. No difference. Yeah, traditionally in Hebrew Bibles, that's the way it's been also. It, it's only been in probably the last 25, 30 years that modern printers have started to make a difference on the page. Uh, so the, uh, maybe eventually the braille printing of the Bible will catch up. Did I, okay, I doubt it too. If you doubt it, I doubt it. Yeah, well, it, it, it now saving the space, it does take more space 
to do the poetry the way it's done. Now, here's just one thing. I, does anybody out there have a you have to be looking at poetry. But do any of you have a single column Bible? Is your Bible in one column? Each page is only one column instead of two. Yes. Okay. Single column Bibles are the best way to read poetry. And we'll find out why momentarily. So let's let's begin. I want to do two since we're Presbyterians. We want to do two things today, each of which start with a P. First, parts. Parts. First thing we want to do is just look at the parts of a poem. And then the second is parallelism. We want to look at what parallelism is because it's one of the key features in poetry. Now, just at the beginning, let me get rid of a couple of things. Um, Hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one and down he ran, hickory dickory dock. That's a limerick. Um, Hebrew doesn't have anything to do with that kind of poetry. In other words, in Hebrew poetry, there's no rhyme. In Hebrew poetry, there's no meter. You can take that meter, plug your own words in, and you've created a limerick. Um, Hebrew doesn't have meter. Hebrew doesn't have uh, rhyming. It has different conventions for what make it poetry, and the key one is parallelism. We're going to look at that in the second place. First of all, parts. Let's start from the kind of the lower level and move to the upper level. The first part that I want to talk about is called a colon. Not that kind. <laughs> a couple of years ago, my sister and I, she's a bit older than I am. We had one of these conversations. Oh, I said, Jan, we're getting old. Do you realize that we've just been talking about our colonoscopies? <laughs> That's bad. I mean, when you're swapping colonoscopy stories with your sister, that's that's just wrong. But we all get there sooner or later. Okay. The the, uh, colon is the singular. The plural is cola. Like phenomenon, phenomena, colon, cola. A colon is a half line. Now, that's not very helpful if you don't know what a, a line is, but we've got to start somewhere. Let me illustrate it for you. Uh, go to Psalm 111. Uh, notice it says, I will extol the Lord with all my heart. I will extol the Lord with all my heart. And the eye is out on the margin. Then it says, in the council of the upright and in the assembly, and in the council is indented one space, one tab. Okay, you with me? No? I will extol the Lord with all my heart. The eye is out on the margin. In the council of the upright and in the assembly is indented one tab. For how many is that true? And those of you who have your hand up, what translation are you using? NIV and the ESV. And you have that indentation. If you're reading the NASB or the New King James, it might not be there. 
See, because this is a modern convention. This, by the way, is one reason for, at least in reading poetry, using something like the ESV or the NIV or the NLT, because it's going to be easier to see the poetry. These translations are more sensitive to the poetic nature. So for those of you who don't see this, walk by faith and not by sight. In the council of the upright and in the assembly is indented. Now, for some of you, that that see, I will extol the Lord with all my heart. That's a colon. In the council of the upright and in the assembly, that's a colon. There are two cola here. OK, now, for some of you, I will extol the Lord with all my heart. That's not all on one line, is it? There's a third indentation there. That third indentation is meaningless. All it means is this. We didn't have enough room on the line to get all these words there, so we had to wrap it. So the first level of indentation says, here's the next colon. The third level says, we didn't have enough room. Which is why I said, what's the best kind of Bible for reading poetry? One column. Because if you have one column, you have more room, and only rarely are you going to get that third indentation, which aesthetically just messes up the page. Okay, you get used to it once you understand how the cola are laid out, but it's still nice. It's a it's a more it's a prettier page. And after all, we are talking about poetry here, so to talk about something that's pretty, this is art. It. We it's it's a it's a better looking page in a single column edition because you don't get that third distracting um, indentation. Let, Let me see that you're reading the NASB. Yeah. Yeah, that's something different. We'll, we're going to talk about that. We're not quite there yet. Okay. Um, read verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. Colon. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Colon. Glorious and majestic are his deeds. Colon. And his righteousness endures forever. Colon. You see, you with me? A colon is a partial line. All right? And that's why you have these indentations. If you have an indented Bible in your poetry, whenever you get that first indentation, that's saying, here's the beginning of another colon. But this is closely related to the one that's out on the margin. Now, let's, let, that's the first part. The second part is a line. What's a line? A line is a group of cola that are closely related to each other. All right. So a colon is part of a line and a line is made up of a couple of cola. Now, you're going to get different kinds of lines. Psalm 111 will show us all of them. Notice that initial praise the Lord. That's a poetic line. It's made up of how many cola? One. And so we call it a mono colon. Mono, colon, one, colon. Now look at look at verse uh, look at the continuance of verse one. 
I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright in the assembly. That's a line. Now, the way we know it's a line is because greater the works of the Lord goes all the way back out to the margin. Yes. Now, um, what I just read, I will extol the Lord in the council of the upright in the assembly. That's a line. How many cola? Two. So we're going to call that a. No. Cola, but. No, that's half. If you have a, a, a cycle with two wheels, what do you call it? A bicycle. So we're going to call this a bicolon. It's a bicolon. Now, if we go to the next verse, glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. That's a line that we're going to call a bicolon. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. That's a bicolon. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. That's a bicolon. Drop down to verse nine. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. That's a tricolon. Like a tricycle has three wheels, a tricolon has three cola. And now go to the last verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Another tricolon. Okay, you, so you with me? We have cola and the cola is a part of a line. If a line has just one, those are not very common, by the way, the monocolon. Then if it's two colon, we call it a bicolon. The vast majority of Hebrew poetic lines are that bicola. It is like stock in trade. I mean, like a carpenter uses a hammer nails, the bicolon is the standard colon. But then we do have some tricola as well as, and we also have some uh, with four lines, and we call those quatrains. We'll we'll see one of them. Uh, 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 momentarily. So you with me? Parts. Colon. And that's the um, the part of a line. The line is uh, one or more cola that hang together very closely. And that's parallelism. We'll see how they hang together. Um, and some of them are mono. Some of them are bi. Some of them are tri. And you can always tell where a new line starts because the new line is always going to start all the way out on the Margin. See, that's the new line. You with me? Now, just one thing there. Lines, poetic lines and verses are sometimes the same, but not always. Sometimes a verse will have a couple of poetic lines in it. Sometimes, like in Psalm 1, one poetic line will cross a verse barrier. So verses, which were added about what year? 1200 A.D., the verse numbers are very late. They're not always a good reflection. Often they are, but they are not always a good reflection of the poetic lines. Okay, so we've gone from the basic level, the colon. We've put some cola together into a line. Now what do we call it if we put some lines together? If you're writing a letter to someone, and it's a several-page letter. And there are some sentences 
that are more closely related to each other than they are to the surrounding sentences, you're going to put all of those closely related sentences together into a paragraph. Now, what we want to see is that a paragraph in poetry is called a strophe. S-T-R-O, stro, P-H-E, strophe. A strophe is a is a batch of closely related poetic lines. Now, if you're um, if you're typing a letter, you have a couple of ways you can choose how to tell somebody that you're starting a new paragraph. What's one way that you can tell somebody this is a new paragraph? Indentation. What's a, another way? That's right. Extra white space in between block paragraphing as opposed to indented paragraphing. Just modern conventions for how to signal on the page that you're starting a new paragraph. And if you're writing well, your your paragraph uh, is well formed. It typically has how many big ideas in it? One has one big idea uh, in it. And it has kind of a beginning and a middle and an end. There's some coherence to it. Well, strophes are like that. Strophes are paragraphs of poetry where the lines are closely related and they usually focus on one idea. And when the idea shifts, you know you've moved into another strophe. Now, not all of our translations, but most of our translations are going to signal for you that a new strophe has begun. And the way they're going to signal for you that a new strophe has begun is by putting extra white space in between the verses. So if you look at Psalm uh, 111, after verse 1, there's extra white space. After verse 9, there's extra white space. That's in the NIV. If you're reading the ESV, it might be different. Because where these strophes start and stop is somebody's interpretation. Which is why it's not a bad idea to use an NIV and an ESV. Because if you're studying a psalm and the NIV and the ESV are identical, nothing to do. But if they differ then you might need to think a little bit more about where you think these strophes start and stop. We'll see the significance of that momentarily. Usually, usually at the end of a colon, there is some kind of punctuation. It may be a comma, it may be a semicolon, it may be a period. The line is almost always going to be a period. Almost always going to be a period. Yep. Uh, in other words, a line is going to be, it, well, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. Each colon can be a complete sentence. But typically, if you have a bicolon that is made up of two sentences, they're going to be separated with a semicolon, not with a period, in in English translation. In Hebrew, no punctuation at all in the ancient text. There was no punctuation. Um, In about the year 500 A.D. to 1000 A.D., there were a Jew, a group of Jewish scholars who began to put punctuation in, but that's secondary. It's not primary, albeit it's very ancient. And those guys knew Hebrew a lot better than I do. 
And so I don't just ignore their work at punctuating the text. I kind of look at it as the earliest commentary we have on how to read the Hebrew Bible. A.D. A.D. 500 to 1,000 A.D. is when they were putting the punctuation in. Yes, the reason, well, they were doing two things. Back in the day, Hebrew was written uh, not only with no punctuation, but with no vowels. Uh, well, it's because, you know, you really don't have to have vowels. Uh, if, for example, if, if, I, if, I wrote, um, if I wrote this, if I'm talking to you about my son, who's about to get engaged... Um, and I write an H, a WLL, a GV, and RNG. He will give her a ring. Yeah, he will give her a ring. And you don't, you don't need any vowels in there at all. Now, I gave you one that's easier to do. Hebrew, though, Hebrew has a difference. Hebrew mothers taught their kids, you are never allowed to start a word or a syllable with a vowel, which is not true of English. And once you restrict and you're never allowed to have, um, um, you're only allowed to have two kinds of syllables in Hebrew, a consonant and a vowel or a consonant and a vowel and a consonant. That's it. Uh, and because of that, you really don't need vowels. However, the Masoretes, they're these scholars that were adding stuff to the text about 500. He, this works pretty well when you're fluent in the language. But when the language is no longer the language you're speaking at home, because Jews are no longer speaking Hebrew, they're speaking Aramaic by the first century A.D. And so the concern is that it would be like back in the day when my mother grew up in a Polish home. And so um, you might if you lived in Europe, you might speak you're Roman Catholic. You might speak German in the home. But when you go to church, you're not hearing German. What are you hearing? Latin. OK, but you don't know Latin very well. And Latin's becoming more and more distant. So Hebrew is becoming more and more distant because Jews aren't speaking it anymore. So we're concerned that we don't lose how to read the text. So when they added the vowels and the accents, they were doing it so as not to lose the traditional pronunciation. Now, they weren't creating the pronunciation. They had received that by oral tradition. They, they knew how to read it. They just want to say, we don't want to lose this. So they started to they created a way to mark the punctuation in the vowels so as not to lose the the reading of the text because they were no longer speakers of Hebrew. Hebrew had become a religious language, like Latin uh, was a religious language. You didn't speak it, but when you went to church, they didn't speak Hebrew. But when they went to the synagogue, it was in Hebrew. So they were losing their fluency. Uh, I was speaking with somebody, French-Canadian. And you talked about how when you don't use your French... You start to lose it, and so they, were, they didn't want to lose it, so they were doing things to preserve, uh, to preserve it. Let's turn to Psalm 29. I told you last night that even though we're studying kind of the mechanics of poetry, we're going to study a couple of psalms along the way. 29 is one of my favorites, a psalm of David. And notice how it says, 
Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, extra space. Now, just look at those first four um, lines. Why did they put extra space after them? Or to put it another way, tell me some things that make those four lines hang together as a strophe. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. What else is what else is repeated four times? Yeah, give, give. You have give, give, give. And then you have the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. You see, you have glory and strength in there. So these all hang together. But notice it goes ascribe or give, ascribe or give, ascribe or give. But then it changes to what? Worship. Typical Hebrew poetry technique. Get you in the rhythm. And then as soon as you're in the rhythm, change it. The change says. Stop. We're done here. Okay, so ascribe, ascribe, ascribe worship. Oh, he's coming to the end. And so you see modern translators, when they put that extra white space in there, it's their interpretation. But this one is crystal clear. These first tell me what these we will just do a little Bible study here. Tell me what these first verses are doing in general. In general, what are they doing? They're not praising. They're instructing. instructing. Whom are they instructing? The congregation to do what? Worship. So on Sunday morning, Mike usually begins with a blank to worship, a call to worship. I wonder where he got that idea. He got it from Zero Mustel. What's the answer? Tradition. That's a it's a tradition to start worship with a call to worship. Well, how old is the tradition? No, it doesn't go back to 1954 when I was born. It goes back to people like David, a thousand B.C., when God's people are called to worship. And so as I've talked, as I've preached here on benedictions and doxologies, um, and you also know by my style that I'm not stuck in the mud. Right. But tradition is valuable. And so churches that just start worship without a call to worship, I say, you know, you're breaking a tradition that goes way back, like to before a thousand B.C. Are you sure you want to do that? Uh, at least if you're going to do it, make sure that you're doing it for a good thought out liturgical reason. So in other words, if we were to label one and two, we could label these with what three words? Call to worship. And uh, by the way, you know, you have um, the happy songs when all is well and the sad songs. And then you have the happy songs when God puts our feet back on solid ground. Well, Psalm 29 is one of these happy songs when all is well. And those songs have a particular form. And guess what they usually start with? Call to worship. This is a hymn. Uh, Call to worship. Now, let's read um, verses three through nine. And somebody tell me, why am I going to stop at the end of nine? Just in general, what do you see on your page? White space. Now, as I read this, look for something that makes these verses hang together as a strophe. 
Oh, by the way, we're supposed to be done in 15 minutes, right? We'll get there. Uh, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, glory. What makes these hang together? Voice. Remember, Hebrew mothers taught their kids to do what with their vocabulary? Repeat their vocabulary so that people will get the main point. Now, so we see that the repetition, voice doesn't occur in 1 to 2. Voice doesn't occur in 10 to 11. It's that key word that makes all of this hang together into what we call a strophe. And our printers have put this, to, uh, marked out this strophe because there's white space at the beginning and there's white space at the end. Now, in general terms, somebody tell me what this paragraph, this strophe is about. What's it describing? Praise, but for what in particular? God's strength. And God's, starts with G, God's strength and God's glory. So it's praising God for his strength and glory. But his strength and glory are not abstract theological categories. There's something concrete that's being described here. What's being described? God's works. What work in particular? Creation, still too, still too broad. Nature, too broad. What's being described? Sky, we're getting closer. Nope. A what? Storm. What kind of storm? Snowstorm? Big thunderstorm. How do we know it's a thunderstorm? Because it talks about thunder. What else does it talk about that you have when you have a thunderstorm? Lightning. Because the lightning superheats the air that causes the sonic boom, which we call thunder. Now, that being said... Voice, 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 voice. To what might the voice be referring if the poem is describing a thunderstorm? Thunder. Thunder. Notice how that word, and the Hebrew word is coal. Coal, 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 coal. That word rolls through these verses just like thunder rolls across the valley. See, the, the poet is is creating the experience of a of a powerful thunderstorm. Now, we might say, okay, thunderstorm. I was going to go golfing. If if we're ancient Israelites, most of us have the same job. And what's our job if we're ancient Israelites? We're farmers. Now, that's number 1. Number two, and see, it helps to know geographical background. Um, Israel is not like Egypt, and Israel is not like Mesopotamia, modern Iraq. Those farmers had a place where they got their water. Where do Egyptians get their water? The Nile. Nile. Where do people in Iraq uh, get their water? The The Tigris and the Euphrates. Guess what ancient Israel didn't have any of for the purpose of irrigation? No rivers. You might think, well, they had the Jordan, 
But the Jordan River, when it starts, is already 600 feet below sea level. And by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, it's 1,200 feet below sea level. They didn't have the technology to use that water. So if they're going to have water on their crops for their farming, where's it got to come from? Rain. The quintessential blessing. I have no doubt that this is not hyperbole. Ask the ancient Israelite this question. You can only have one blessing. What do you want? Rain. Because if they got rain, they got everything else that comes along with it. They get grain to eat. They get grain to trade. But here's simply this. No rain, no grain, no grain, no life. That's why God says in Deuteronomy 11, when Israel's about to enter the land, the land you're about to enter in to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt where you irrigated by foot. But it's a land that drinks in rain from heaven. So that if you obey me, I will open up the heavens to pour rain on your land. If you disobey me, the heavens will be like iron and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the, we're farmers. We need rain. So now the other thing is anybody here from Southern California? No. OK, that's that's all right. By email. Uh, might not quite work. But anybody know in in in, in Southern California? Uh, let's see. What time of year is it? OK, let's say that it's August. Let's say that we're planning a picnic. We do not need plan B. What's plan B? What do we do if it? From June through July, August, September into October, we don't need plan B because it never rains in California. But come October, it's going to start to rain. And it's going to rain through the winter until about mid-May when it's going to in other words, you have a discrete dry season and rainy season, okay? The climate and the topography of ancient Israel is just like California, except it's smaller. Israel would have gone from Orlando to Key West and from Lakeland to Melbourne. That's ancient Israel right there. But, but same pattern. Now, imagine that you're a farmer. And as a farmer, uh, it's October. You want to do what with the seed that's in your hand? Plant it. But there hasn't been any rain since May. Just the hot sun. Tell me one thing about the land. It's hard. Another thing is it's de- hard and dry. You don't have a John Deere. You maybe have a wooden plow with an iron plowshare on it, and maybe you have a donkey or an ox to pull it. What must you wait for before you can do any plowing? You've got to wait for the rain. That's exactly right. So this psalm that's celebrating God's power and God's glory, what's it celebrating? Concretely, it's celebrating the coming of those first rains in what we call fall. Those first fall rains that are going to provide for us to plow and to plant and for our crops to grow so that we can have a harvest. Okay, now let's go to the last verses. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. 
How would the ancient Israelites know that God is reigning? R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G. Exactly. When they see that it's raining, R-A-I-N-I-N-G, they know that God is reigning, R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G. By the way, ancient Israel was sorely tempted throughout its history to worship this other god named Baal. And um, guess whom the Canaanites believed Baal was? The god of rain. Which is why we have this uh, thing on Mount Carmel with Elijah. Uh, let's see who can send fire from heaven. Yeah. Nobody cared about who could send fire from heaven. What do they care about? That's why the story starts with Elijah saying, there will be neither dew nor until I say so. Then they have this competition. And after fire comes down, everybody, because Elijah says, if the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. But quit tottering between two opinions. So the fire comes down uh, at Elijah's prayer and consumes. But really, nobody's. how's the story end? It's not over there. It's over when Elijah goes on to Mount Carmel. And he sends his servant to look out over the Mediterranean. What do you see? Nothing. 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 What do you see? I see a cloud out there about the size of a man's fist. And Elijah says, you better go tell Ahab to get off the mountain because rain is coming. And the story ends with a powerful thunderstorm. How's the story start? No do or rain till I say so. How's the story end? Here's the rain. What's the whole story about? Who is reigning? And how do we know that God is reigning? R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G. Because he's the one who's in control of the R-A-I-N. You see, geography is so important for theology because their theology God reveals ancient Old Testament theology in a particular geographical context. And if we're reading the Old Testament in a different context, we might miss the point. Because if you change context, you change. So even things like studying geography are richly rewarding because they help us understand the context, which helps us understand the meaning. So we know that God is king. He's reigning because it's raining. Now notice it says the Lord gives strength to his people. Um, go back to verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. You want to know what God's glory and strength is like? It's like this magnificent thunderstorm. Now, you might not think thunderstorms are magnificent. I happen to love them. And one of the things I loved about moving to central Florida was experiencing these powerful thunderstorms with this magnificent lightning because it's a revelation of who God is. We have this doctrine of general revelation, God revealing himself through scripture. We sing in the rustling grass. I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. But when's the last time you heard God talking to you through creation? He's talking. Maybe we're not. And so thunderstorms are just a marvelous time when God speaks to us of his power and of his glory. Uh, by, by the way, 
uh, in one of these books, maybe this one, I, don't, I forget. I talk about the fact that we don't have uh, an, an energy crisis. We have a technology crisis. If we had the technology to, ca- to capture lightning bolts, the power companies would be paying us to take the electricity off of their hands. See, we have a technology crisis. And in the same way, we don't have a power crisis as Christians. We have a technology crisis. It's not a lack of power. It's a lack of faith. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is within us. The power that exceeds the power of these thunderstorms. Paul says that God is able to do exceedingly more than we can ask or think according to his power that is out there somewhere. No, that's right. According to his power that's at work already within us. The power's there. We just have to access it by faith. But again, that means running the risk. See, it comes back to living a risky life. Uh, as a Christian, but the power that is in the storm, it says the Lord gives this kind of power There's the Lord gives strength to his people and the Lord blesses his people with shalom. Now, I was asked a question at the break. What's the difference between shalom and ashray? Here's shalom. Uh, shalom and ashray are synonyms. They're referring to the same thing. But they're kind of like father and daddy. My 19-year-old daughter still calls me daddy. I hope that doesn't end. You know, father and daddy refer to the same person. But father's very formal and daddy's very personal. They refer to the same thing. They're synonyms, but they're not really identical, right? And Ashrei and Shalom point to the same blessed reality. But Ashrei is more the idea of well-being. And Shalom is more the idea of wholeness. Wholeness in every area of life. Shalom is when your body is whole. Shalom is when your relationships are whole. Shalom is when your emotions are whole. Shalom is when your mental state is whole. Shalom is when your finances are whole. Shalom is when you are whole. God, when you were in the garden before the fall, you had perfect shalom. And in heaven, you're going to have perfect shalom. You all have shalom now, but you all have a need for some more shalom, which is why in another way altogether, Jesus said, pray. Pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. Jesus is saying heaven is where there's perfect ashray. Heaven is where there is perfect shalom. And pray that the ashray and the shalom of heaven will come into your experience on earth. You're not going to have it perfectly until heaven But God grant us grace that we might experience more of that ashray and more of that shalom as we go. Well, we're done. Uh, The lesson's not done, but we're done. You know, the one great thing about being a teacher is that there's always more to talk about, right? Always more to talk about. Um, And so if I didn't get through everything, that's okay. I'd rather get through well what we do get through than get through everything and kind of rush it and so... 
there will be another time for the rest of what we do. Um, I do in, in this book, Transformed by Praise. By the way, Christmas is not far away. So when you're thinking about ordering, uh, like in Chicago, you know, vote early, vote often. <laughs> buy early, buy often. Everybody in your sphere of influence needs this book as a Christmas present. Uh, and they also need this one. I also wrote a Hebrew grammar. They all need my Hebrew grammar for sure. And uh, so I think we did get through all the key parts. You understand the colon and the line and why there's the indentation. You understand the white spaces. Now, let me just close with this. Let's say that you're asked to do a Bible study. And in your Bible study, you're going to study Psalm 29. How many points might you have in your study? Three. Why three? Three strophes. And your first trophy might be call to worship. And then you talk about that. And your, your second trophy might be um, praise for God's glory and power. And you talk about that. And your third trophy is prayer for God's strength and peace. You see? So this, this understanding strophes prevents you from looking at these psalms and thinking, man, that's just one line after another. No. You can break it up into chunks. And I'll leave you with this. Those of you who um, are parents and have children a little bit older than four months, but children who are eating solid food for the first time, I dare say you did not put a 10-ounce T-bone steak in front of them for the first time and say, have at it. (laughs) What did you do when they were first learning to eat meat? You cut it up into chunks because it's easier to digest chunks and the same thing is true educationally educators use a real technical word they call it chunking yeah where you take information and you break it up into chunks because it's so understanding the strophic structure of a poem puts it into chunks which makes it easier for you to understand. And if it's easier for you to understand, it's easier for you to communicate to somebody else when you're teaching a Bible study uh, or just sharing uh, with a friend. And uh, with that, we'll quit. Mike, it's all yours.